the shift that's been so big for me is looking at performance and understanding performance is not about the results I get. Like I could be the best athlete and if I'm unhappy, I don't have good relationships or a a myriad of other things or or I'm eating poorly. Is that really optimal performance? And the the thing that connected it all for me was when I'm living within my virtues, the things that are innately fulfilling that make me me, then I have access to my highest level of performance. Mm-hmm. And and performance without virtue, it's not performance. It's <laughs> it's just getting really good results. Welcome to the Off-Ball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 Beach Volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and movement leader. This conversation is designed to go deep into what it means to be an athlete when you do not have the ball or the implement. Essentially, it's human development of the mind, of the body, and in life. Today's guest is David Ogle head coach at Dose Coaching. This guy is fantastic. We go deep into neuroscience, into psychology, and marry those two to bring in virtuous athlete development. We discuss competing, we go deep into philosophy, and we try to create a culture shift around the bullshit that is the grind. We're talking quality over quantity. This is a very enjoyable conversation, so rich in information. He is such a great coach and has so many awesome nuggets and ways to really think about life and performance in a way that is accessible outside of sport. This is our fourth episode. Would love for you to give us a rating on iTunes as we get this off the ground. Lots more to come. Please reach out to us as well at OffBallAthlete on Instagram. Would love to hear from you. Please enjoy this episode with David Ogle. We have in from Vancouver, the director, founder, janitor, main man, chief vibe officer of Dose Performance Coaching. Um, stoked to, to chat with you today, man. It's going to be great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I, and I'm going to take chief vibe off, officer. I'm, I'm going to keep that one. In in my my crazy little world, uh, I I was a chief vibe officer for a, a company um, where made made the workouts and made the music and set the tone. So I'd always joke with myself that I was the chief vibe officer, and still to this day, that's I, that's a title I'll take with me. That's awesome. So sharing fun titles. Um, there was a time for about two years uh, that my though not my official job title, what I was known as was glitter technician, which <laughs> I always, I always liked that one because it's like gl- glitter is the, the thing that creates the experience and, and it sticks with you. And so I kind of stuck with that. Like I was doing leadership work and it's like, yeah, I, I bring the glitter to the, the culture. I, d- I just see you like packing a bunch of glitter into a, a, a glitter gun. Like how much glitter can we put into this? Oh, this you designed a big one. <laughs> like bang flag with the glitter. That's rad. Exactly. <laughs> P- people couldn't do their laundry enough to get the glitter out. <laughs> 
Okay, so we got we got introed by a good friend of mine and, and obviously a good friend of yours here, Vince Luciani, the legacy coaching big tip of the hat to to Vincey. Um for myself, not really knowing you in person, but now getting a bit of a, an understanding of who you are and what you stand for, can you share a little bit of, more about what you got going on at Dose? Yeah. It'd be weird if I said no. <laughs> yeah. we'd, we'd have a lot less to talk about in that case. Yeah. Well, that was a quick podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so where, where Dose came from is, is my, my job for about the last 10 years has been in some capacity to be a coach. Uh, and I, I'm sure there's a great discussion about the broad capacities of, of coaching as mm-hmm. a profession. And uh, I worked internally in an organization as really a leadership coach. And, and I would work with athletes, with our senior leadership team, um, and, and with employees in the company. And I, I started to realize there was an opportunity to do more in the world around coaching as a practice. But then there's, there's a conversation around performance that I'm really passionate about. And, and I find there's a high aptitude, but it, it's still quite new in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's kind of, you know, I think you're picking up on this conversation too with what you're doing around off-ball is performance is not the end goal. Performance is the experience. And, and the way in which I pursue performance across my whole life is actually what matters. So that moment of when I'm 75 years old and sitting on my porch and, you know, shouting at the kids playing in the yard, it's, it's that moment of looking back and recognizing what were the virtues that I lived by as I created the performance of my life. And, and am I actually thinking about that today? So that's that. That's you know a, a very like, poetic way of saying how dose began. But I, I realized an opportunity to do work with business leaders and professional athletes around performance in a different way that has them looking at long-term sustainable performance rather than driving really great business results and, and hitting the bottom line. Oh, that's so good, so good. Um, let's let's dive right in here because the the issue or the thing that I'm looking to solve or I've set out to really make an impact in is that we're we're looking at the youth development, the the professionalization of youth sport is getting more and more serious at younger and younger ages. And we're at a race to the bottom. And so mm-hmm. I believe that we're at a point now where we're we're looking at kids at such a young age and, and, and encouraging them to specialize and making it about the wins and making it about that sport and not really opening up the room for opportunity of the virtuous athlete development, which runs for life. And, and we're focusing on these tiny little things. And so a about seven zero seventy percent of kids right now are stopping. They're quitting sport by the age of 13 because it's no longer fun, which if, in terms of the next generation of population, that's a group of people now that left sport because they don't like it. So therefore, they're likely less less capable within a group. They're not pushing themselves as hard. They don't have an understanding of their bodies as well as they could. They might not be motivated to take care of themselves. The, the leadership that they may be missing because they didn't play team sports. I mean, just literally the vessel of sport to educate humans is so huge. 
And then two, the identity that kids have based on I'm a winner or I'm a loser that day, or I'm focused on since I was seven, all I am is a hockey player and that 15, you don't make the cut. Now all of a sudden you got nothing left and, and your whole identity and purpose was in the sport, but no one spoke to them about the values and virtues they were developing within the sport. And Hey, if we just create that conversation, we're translating those to here, you still have them even though you're not playing that sport. And so does that ring any bells with you? Is that, is anything going off with that? No, nothing. <laughs> I, gosh, <laughs> sorry. I'll, I'll stop ruining your podcast. No, oh, no this is a conversation, bro. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> there's a, oh yeah. I'm sorry. The conversation. Um, there's two things that, that come up for me as you're saying that, and they're so important. So, I mean, I grew up playing sports and I grew up, I was fortunate that I grew up in a time where the sports generalist approach was still somewhat viable. And I remember getting to high school and having to make the decision, what's my sport? I, yeah. I can't play them all. The coach, you know, the soccer coach doesn't want me playing lacrosse in the spring. The lacrosse coach wants me playing fall ball in the fall and the summer. And none of them like that I skied in the winter. Um, but I, I was fortunate to have that generalist approach. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's an interesting corollary to what you're seeing in sports and youth and the drop-off rate. And so a, a huge passion of mine in the world of coaching and leadership is also looking at how how does performance and virtue drive mental health? Because mm-hmm. there's a relationship. Mm-hmm. When I'm living into virtuous performance – I'm more likely to be aware of myself and healthy mentally, just as I might care about my physical health. And, and that's a long tangent I won't go on. Well, we can, but, we can dive in later. <laughs> yeah, well, part two. Yeah. Um, to me, the corollary that, that you're bringing up for me is one of the four key components of mental health throughout someone's life is physical activity. Mm-hmm. And my ability to be active and, and connect with the world around me in physical ways. So if I'm quitting sports at an early age, what's the impact on my mental health when I'm 30? Because do I have a positive relationship or even a relationship at all with physical activity? Like, yes. Oh, man. And, and so, you know, to bring the mental health side of it into it, general research is showing 25 to 30% of people over the course of a calendar year, like right now, have some sort of mental health something going on, which when we say mental health, usually people are talking like mental disorder or mental illness. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it in that sense, one in four people you interact with today have some sort of mental challenge. Mental challenge means something different. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Edit that out. Um, but, but, But with that, over the course of someone's lifetime, we're all going to struggle or deal with something in our mental health. It's, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And do I have the background of fitness to help promote my mental health? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, it, it, it totally does. Well, you know, I, I'm living in a place now where I really want to encourage kids, encourage youth, encourage adults. Hell, I want to encourage everybody to develop a relationship with their bodies and the minds that is wholesome, that is one and that's positive. And the amount of people that have this relationship with, I love putting air quotes on fitness or fitnessing 
that's unhealthy, I'm going to the gym to punish myself. What if we flip that around? And this is pillar number one for off ball is how can I love myself more through this process? If I can flex my love muscle more and more, what if I'm going to the gym to actually love myself more and more? What if we were just to make that single switch and now all of a sudden physical activity is a form of self-appreciation and self-love and the ability to which I can deadlift 500 pounds off the ground is the ability through by which I can love myself equivalent to 500 pounds coming off the ground. And I don't see a lot of that. I still see people punishing themselves or thinking that they have to do it. And, oh, it's the worst part of my day and this and that. It's like, whoa, since when was this such a terrible thing? Like this whole process of improving your body to improve your mind, why is that a chore? Uh, it's such a good question. And, and to me, it goes back to that first bit around the relationship of performance and virtue of if my performance is driven by my virtues, then the things I do are driven by what I love and what I care about rather than not being what I'm afraid of or mm. not being something bad. So it's th that 500 pound deadlift isn't, I must perform because I am not enough. <laughs> That's that's not sustainable. Oh, totally. That's stressful. Like, totally. Just even saying it, I mean, 500 pounds is a lot of weight. <laughs> no, it, is, it is a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the, the alternative, and I think it's totally what you're saying is, you know, if, if my virtue is perspective and I know that going to the gym creates a perspective for me around fitness and self-awareness and it calms my mind down. Mm-hmm. Now that experience of performance at the gym, if it's fulfilling and it's uplifting, not like a word that I can't stand is the grind, like yeah. whether it's work oh, here or, or the gym. Yeah. Like <laughs> here comes the flood. I'm like, the grind is the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. I don't want that in my, in my life. And, and, and being an entrepreneur, I've been inundated with it ever since starting dose because, oh, you you got to hustle. You got to grind. It's like, do I? Like, I get, I have to work hard, but what if I work hard through my virtues that accomplishes stellar performance rather than grinding away because I'm so afraid of failing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what comes up for me is, is this, this narrative thing, uh, a, a great book, um, winning through enlightenment, uh, fantastic book from possibly eighties, nineties, a good friend of mine, Johnny castles, at castles tutoring who works with tons of kids. Great guy. He, he put it on my plate and, and we jam out when we're at the gym and this whole concept of, of narrative, we're all our own narrative. And so this voice that's inside of our head, this dialogue that we're having, if your narrative is I'm grinding, you're subject to that narrative really closing off the possibility of you actually loving what you're doing. And so we're then kind of in this victim mindset. I see this grind as I'm putting in the time because I want to show people that I'm putting in the time. That's my narrative. When I say someone to someone that I'm on the grind, I want them to respect me because I'm putting in overly amounts of time into this thing because I want them to, to care for me and love and appreciate and validate that, that I'm on the grind and, and mm. it's, 
that doesn't mean by any means that you you're actually using your time wisely or do you love what you're you're doing i think is a great great conversation because the grind to me is the opposite of loving what you're doing if i'm not mistaken oh it's it's totally true and it's a funny like i think you're you're surfacing an unconscious bias that a lot of people have which is if i were to say what is better quantity or quality 99 out of 100 people maybe even 100 out of 100 are like oh quality over quantity every time and yet the way we act and the decisions we make is i will spend a quantity amount of time doing work rather than a quality amount of time and therefore people will see how hard i'm working and and i'll be rewarded or something mm-hmm. it's backwards like we we believe something and yet the the unconscious bias that drives it is is completely opposite mm-hmm. well I had a great conversation this last weekend with a couple coaches and this whole conversation is I'm too busy. Fair, but the, the, I'm too busy is one of two things for me and I'm trying to hold myself accountable to this is it's either not a priority or I don't know how to manage my time. One Spot or, on. One or the other. So if it's not a priority, either say, hey man, I got a lot of stuff on the go. What you're presenting to me, that meeting is just not a priority in my life right now. Appreciate you reaching out. I'd love to have that conversation in two months versus I'm too busy to have that, which is kind of right up the middle. I, sorry, I'm on the grind. I can't really do that. No, well, that maybe you don't have your priorities straight. And you're not focusing on the things that are really the biggest bang for your buck and the stuff that gives you joy and, and love to then bring that into the world. No, it's, it, oh man, it's, it's the lesson I learned in my, I think it's my mid twenties of Friday night, all my friends are going out. I'm a relatively quiet, more introverted person. I would like to go out once every four months, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I would go out every Friday night and all of a sudden I found myself drained and exhausted and just like generally not lit up. And what I realized was I wasn't confident enough to stop and say, going out on a Friday night is not my priority. Staying home, taking care of myself, doing the things I love to do is my priority. Because then when I see you for brunch on Saturday, I'm actually a lot more enjoyable to Mm. be around. But it's, it's scary. Like that's, that's a huge jump to make as a person to be able to say, the thing that you're saying you want to do is not a priority to me. I still love you. I still think you're an amazing person. I have no judgments about the thing you want to do. It's just not for me. Mm-hmm. And, and living on the West Coast, I think it becomes even more exacerbated because we're so go with the flow of, you know, no one says yes or no to anything. Everyone just says maybe. Like, oh, you're going out? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I think I could, I'll probably swing by. Like, you know, it's the West Coast maybe, which it's a it's a hard no. Right, right. That makes so much sense. Well, oh, there's so many ways I could go about it. Um, I'd love to throw this this at you. This is a personal philosophy that I've I've been developing over time that I really haven't shared publicly yet. Um, but this whole line of authenticity, your truth. So let's let's picture a graph of of that vertical line of authenticity, and then the the parallel of that is compromise. And so you have this external game 
of compromise in one direction, so other people, and you have an internal game of compromise with yourself. And so the truer you are able to live into your line of authenticity right up that middle and wake up with a a clear understanding of who you are, what makes you feel good, what your purpose is, what your meaning is, what, what it is that you want to bring to life every single day, the more you can guard it. And this is the conversation I have, or I'm starting to have with younger kids is every single day, every interaction that there's a possible compromise. Someone wants you to do something. So to the level at which you allow them to pull you away from your line of authenticity, the more you're serving them and you're kind of losing a bit of yourself. And some people don't know who they are enough to hold on to that line and, and they lose themselves and they wind up doing other people's bidding. And if you wake up every single day and you don't know who you are, you're likely just going to do what everyone else says. And then internally there's that compromise and this is that mental health internal voice that we all have that says, we can't do something. You're not capable. You're not worthy. You're shit. That voice that is always present. If you don't have control over that voice, it will pull you away once again, but internally from that line of authenticity. And that's something that I'm really playing with, with kids. And and there's a few levels deeper, but I'll stop right there. Does that, does that show up anywhere for you? Yeah, it's, it's a really, I love that, that internal external access that you're creating. Um, and, uh, especially like around the compromise piece and, and what it's making me think of. And, and it's actually something that, that peaked for me earlier in the conversation we were talking and, and it's back. So I'm like, Oh, there, there's a story to tell. So, um, after which Olympics did you go to? 2012. It's 2018. Okay. Yeah. So after Rio, which is 2016, <laughs> I'm, I'm not good. Not good with years. Oh, apparently. Good. <laughs> so after after Rio, I did work with about twenty athletes that had just finished Rio, and and it was a really interesting experience to do coaching with athletes who had just finished accomplishing for some of them the biggest milestone of their life, mm-hmm. and for others matching what had you know been the biggest milestone of their life four years ago mm-hmm. if it was like their second or third Olympics. Um, of the twenty. 18 of them, their, their careers were essentially over. They didn't have another four years left. And of those 18, I'd say maybe two of them knew it when we started talking. And, and it's exactly what you, you're explaining with that compromise of some of them were so far down. I must, I'm an athlete. My identity's wrapped up in it and I have to compete. And it's just, it's who I am if I don't do this. They couldn't even see who they were. Mm. So they, they never actually figured out, well, who am I without all these pressures? Um, but then others, they were so stuck in, I'll let everyone who supports me and has cheered me on for all these years down if I don't compete. Mm. Compete. So it was, it was that compromise of, I'm not even doing this because I love it anymore. Which, I mean, you know, that's that's a big conversation to have with both sides coming into the middle and realizing the only question to ask is 
do I love competing? Mm -hmm. At what level do I want to compete? What's that mean for me? Mm -hmm. That's so good. That's so good. You use compete a lot and it's, that's probably one of my favorite words. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your ethos is around competing the word compete? It's a good question. So I grew up, I grew up playing team sports. I played, I played soccer. I played baseball. By the time I got to high school, lacrosse was my sport. So I, I played lacrosse. So to me, up until like, again, my probably my mid twenties competing was a group of people competing against someone else, like, or even one person against someone. It was a very adversarial thing. And I always think of like growing up the, the Nike ads or the Under Armour ads of like, in order for you to win, he must suffer. Like, <laughs> like in the language of crush them at all costs and all, all of that stuff, which, you know, there's a long tangent around masculinity. I'm, I'm, see, I'm seeing Stallone and Van Damme in that. Yeah. Yes. Blood sport. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised on Rocky. Um, and then uh, mid 20s, the shift that happened is I got into cycling. I had a brief tangent running and then realized I, I didn't really like it very much. Um, and I got into Olympic weightlifting, which is, it was this mind blowing experience of, I would still have a quote unquote team. I'd have people around me that I'm training with, but it's kind of like being a golfer. Like my performance is my own. And then a competition, like I, I actually believe to be a great individual sport competitor with sustainable results, you, you have to look at a competition in terms of I'm going and doing my best and in, in creating my performance. It's not about, I hope I do better so that that guy doesn't like, you know, impact them. So, so it was a shift in competition of me versus them to me versus me, mm-hmm. which I think like that's the the base notion on competition that a lot of individual athletes have. And then where it becomes maladaptive is it goes to, to your point around punishment or it's me versus me. I'm not good enough. I have to be the best, like all these narratives yeah. versus it's me versus me. What is the best version of me today? Yeah. And how do I walk away with gratitude and love of that experience. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a tricky one. I'm, I I certainly haven't mastered it, but um, what I notice, and, and this is something like I, I coach some weightlifting. What I'm proud of with my athletes is they're not the best weightlifters. Like they're not hitting the best totals, but th- they do quite well. Mm-hmm. But they're by far the most mindful ones because yeah. they're they're so focused and aware of who they are and their experience that they're not missing a moment. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love it. And and what shows up for me there is there's no end to that journey. It's just constant personal development. And, and I believe that within personal development, we have to have tests. We have to put ourselves to the test, but if your identity becomes the outcome of the test and you stay there or you win and you hold on to it and you don't grow past it, you lose, you hold on to it, you don't grow past it. 
that causes some big problems. So this, the journey, the constant evolution of yourself, and then you have to put yourself to test so you know, and it holds you accountable. Um, that's huge. I, I love that. But that the journey of, you know, the against and then showing up for, for oneself and progressing it. That's beautiful, man. And I like what you're saying there about like, you, you do have to test yourself at some you have point. To. Like I can't, I can't just sit and be a little weightlifter by myself and, and not like ever push myself. Otherwise, am I really reaching optimal performance? Mm-hmm. And it's that relationship with the test of, is the test something that holds me accountable to being the best version of me? Or is my identity wrapped up in the result of that test? Totally. And the latter, again, gets into that maladaptive, I lose myself. And, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of team sport athletes who go into the individual realm that make that pitfall. Yeah. Could I, could I throw my, my definition or, or what I'm toying with uh, in, into the ring? No, I, I, I just like hearing my own. <laughs> yeah, of course. I want to hear it. So I've been chewing on this one for a while because I love the word compete. And, you know, it started with the thought of if I was laying on my deathbed and someone went, man, you're the best winner I've ever met. I'd be like, what? That's bunk. I mean, that's, you know, there's no virtue to that. You know, I'm a winner is just so vacuous. It's so surface level. And so, you know, the, the true compliment, this is kind of the, the game I was playing with myself is if someone said you're the best competitor I've ever met, there's so much hardiness to that. There's so much there. And so that was really the off ball athlete was, you know, how am I preparing myself for the competition so I can compete? And as a part of that jamming with one of my good friends, uh, Gary LeBlanc, who's, who's just a, you know, old soul and so knowledgeable and he took me through this this great exercise and we wound up coming back to the Greeks and going back to virtuous athlete development and and we wound up just like I wonder what they thought of compete and so we checked that out and, and compete was actually the the genesis of the word was competere which is to strive together and so mm. we wound up having this hour and a half conversation that just one coming out with this whole concept of to strive together is to work with your teammates, but also to work with your opponents to create something beautiful that would not have existed had you not prepared yourself to compete as best you could and then wished your opponent showed up at their best to then create something that would not have happened had you not held yourself accountable to wanting to compete at the best of your abilities. And so the concept of I'm here to compete has nothing to do with outcome. You can totally disregard outcome. And I'm not one of those guys that says we shouldn't keep score and this. Like, I think there's a ton of value in that. I'm not saying we should totally remove winning and losing because there's so much value to that. But if we put all the onus on winning and losing, we, we, we lose the part of developing the person, which is to make a better competitor. And so taking yours, there was a, there was an against, and then there was a me. And then my, my journey took me to the, to a with. I love that. I love that. I mean, one of the foundational concepts that I built dose around is uh, the notion of erite, which is also an ancient Greek word. Oh yes, um, <laughs> and and it's that that unique version of excellence that that is 
uniquely attainable for each individual. Mm -hmm. And and to me, like what I, I see that dovetails so nicely is your definition and perspective around competition is actually the group's exploration of each individual uh, arete showing up to create something that's never never been created before. Absolutely. And so working with a national team, uh, beach volleyball team that's competing this weekend, you know, the last practice I led was the start was introducing that competition mindset. We're all here to compete. And it's your goal that everybody else shows up as best they can so that you can benefit from having to compete against someone who's bringing it there all. And, and the attitude shift of, of kind of this holding on to something a little bit because there might, there might be a winner or a loser and they're on the same team, but they're, or sorry, same national team, but they're, they're kind of opponents. And then all of a sudden, once we created space in the practice for giving it your best and you can fail, but it's contributing to this greater good, just took the intensity to another level, but also the attitude behind it, you know, behind every service and every spike was, you know, it was way more loving versus this hating against, you know, like they could see the ball traveling over the net with love, not to go high performance hippie on it, but you know, it was, it was different, man. The, the intention of the practice when everybody wanted everyone to be at their best was so good. Yeah. I'm, so I'm curious because I, I know what my approach is. It's, it's why I'm a coach. But that space, like you created a, a very specific intentional space that allowed that to emerge. Is that, is that what's missing in most sports, especially in youth? So what I'm chewing on right now, and I, I don't know if you've read Josh Waitzkin's The Art of Learning, um, if if not, um, I highly recommend that book. But I'm chewing on creativity, and and this whole creative process I think is getting squeezed out of youth development because every single practice is so rigid and so planned. Free play is no longer a part of that, and so when there's no free play, you're not ex- you're not expressing or able to develop the expression of your arete or of your truth to then show up in whatever sport that you're playing. And so creativity for me is that playfulness, is that fun bit where it's not about perfect form. Yeah, sure, build that. But also where where are we allowing kids to just totally play and have fun and express themselves freely? And there's there's high performance in that creativity. There, there's self-expression in, in its creativity. The, the art form of, of learning and, and then bringing it forward in that creative space where it, it's critical, but I don't think we have it anymore. And, and so hey, the, the fun bit is, is huge, but trusting the athletes enough to let them bring out their creativity and practice was a part of that was creating space for creativity. And I don't know if that answers that. I kind of went on a bit of a tangent, um, but the creative side of sport is something I think we stifled, man. Mm. I, I really like that perspective. I like to put my own twist in it. And I think it's a bit of a parallel is, you know, one of the things I, I believe is we all have all this genius 
mm-hmm. in our heads. And, and, you know, the, the experience of insight is so deeply rewarding and exciting and motivating for us. And yet we're so focused on things all day long that we actually don't create the cognitive capacity for insight to happen. Mm. So to your practice, it's, it's so regimented that people are going through the motions and doing all the things that they don't actually have the space for an insightful expression of something new to occur. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's when I look at like my belief around coaching is my job is to support people in distilling their genius, to take all those genius ideas and, and create something simple and doable. And what that means is I have to let go of being the expert. Yeah. My job is to cultivate the, the expert that's within other people. But then we look at sports and, and that demand of high performance becomes so imperative that the role of the coach shifts from someone who cultivates that creative expression or that, that genius output. Mm-hmm. And they try and force it. And it's like, no, you must do this thing because then if you do this thing, then this thing will happen. And it's this giant if-then logical chain. And humans aren't if-then logical chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Well, I I remembered my train of thought of why I I brought Josh Waiskin into it, but the creativity side of things, we're all trying to solve problems in sport. We have a specific playing area, implement, time, scoring mechanism, teammates, one-on-one, whatever that looks like, it's, it's a problem and go. And so the more we restrict people to solve the problem, the problem through my or your as a coach coach's way it stifles that space and so if we can as coaches develop a, a trust within this practice where we create the framework to create a, a stimulus but then we leave it on the athlete to to find their own unique way of solving the problem now all of a sudden we leave we create so much space for that creative expression and, and for them to really shine and have fun with it because we're not stifling them. We're not essentially putting out their fire, if that makes any sense. It, it makes complete sense. I mean, what it, what it actually comes down to, and we keep circling around it, is trust. And my role as a coach is to trust that an athlete is going to find their performance, their creative expression, whatever it is they need to find to take their their game to the next level. And in order to do that, I have to trust myself Mm. to, to watch it. And that's scary. And it goes back to, you know, the, the compromise and authenticity graph that, that you have of if I'm not self balanced in that middle piece, then how am I, how can I hold that space for someone else? To, to find that for themselves if I haven't even found it for myself. Mm-hmm. Which then, that's the tricky piece with youth sports, I imagine, is how many of the coaches have the time and discretionary effort to go into deep self-exploration so that they can be that for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to bring it into dose. I want to find out a little bit more, a little bit more specifically, because it's super, super fascinating. I saw neuroscience, I saw some leadership, and then there was a third word, what was, was there a third word within that, that primary bit, or was it just leadership and neuroscience combined? Uh, it'd be coaching. Coaching. Okay. So can you talk to me a little bit how you bring neuroscience into your approach? 
of course. So I'm, I'm finishing my master's in cognitive neuroscience. And it's, it's actually a great example of when we do things that are innately fulfilling to us, it's almost like this after the fact moment of, oh, this totally relates to everything. So uh, about five years ago, I, I just started getting on the geek train of, of neuroscience, which until five years ago, I was not a science person. I had a degree in philosophy. I almost failed astronomy. So it was a shock when people were like, wait, you're doing what? <laughs> um, and in, in that pursuit, all of a sudden I realized my role as a coach and in, in doing leadership work with people fundamentally changed. Uh, I started to recognize there's real ways that our brains work and as a coach who's talking with leaders and athletes around leadership, the fundamental tool we're all using a ton is our mind. And yet the tool we all have very little understanding about is our mind. So all of a sudden I felt this overwhelming responsibility, not just out of curiosity, but uh, to be a responsible practitioner mm -hmm. to understand more about the mind, to, to bring that into the conversation. So it, it has so much implication on, on one hand. It's like when I was talking about insight, understanding neurologically, what, ha like what's the, the train that happens in our brain that creates insight and how do I, cr as a coach, construct the space in conversation for someone else to have that and even see it like in, in the way that I coach weightlifting, it's asking more questions of the athletes rather than being like, stop doing that, do this differently. Oh, someone's having trouble by by forcing the bar. So ask him, like, what what's causing you to control try and control the bar so much? Which then all of a sudden, you know, they start to take that. And I remember one day a guy texting me afterwards being like, Man, your your question about control and why it's such an issue for me, that was way more than weightlifting. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And and it really comes from that that neuroscientific principle of like how how insight works. And then, you know, there's always the fun things that I think every every client or team that I work with, you know, likes the experience of, okay, what's actually happening in your brain when you're multitasking? Because it's a thing we all know I shouldn't multitask, and yet everyone multitasks endlessly. So getting people to actually experience what's going on, so what's the impact to your performance there? Hmm. And so are you coaching then people to be more present? That that's really in yeah, that in absolutely. that absolutely in that moment of performance. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah, it's it, to me it's the the three words that that play off each other are mindfulness, presence and thoughtfulness. <laughs> and it's and like how do I explore all three of those and find what's my approach and then cultivate that in other people. That's so great. So where where I'm building the first layer of of the off-ball athlete is is love self-awareness and presence and so it's that, mm. that building the what I, what I call kind of the state of being that source energy and then the, the middle one is the framework and then the third one is the expression of growth as it kind of as it comes out so that the love to self-awareness to them being present that one, two, three combo and taking you through that and layering it over practice. So how do we attach love? How do we flex the love muscle to this week and practice the self-awareness muscle and then the, the presence muscle? And then how do those, those three play together to create a better athlete? You know, what we're talking about are, 
are principles that go so far beyond sport, which is what I love. I, I only really want to talk in principles that can apply to everything now. If it only lives in this little box, forget about it. Well, it's to me, it's the definition of a short-sighted goal or outcome that if the thing that I'm doing only applies to getting this one goal in this one point in time, is that useful to me as a human? And and what I actually care about is working with humans and, and something I'm really passionate about is working with men to discover what does it look like to be a more human leader? Mm. Because there's, you know, the, the world is made up of men and women and there's a huge conversation around female equality. It's so important. And if we just ignore men and let them continue to just do things the way that we do them, we're forgetting the fact that we're all humans and, and tapping into that experience. There's, so it's, it's that human perspective rather than uh, task or, or action. Totally. And so I, I just came back from a certification uh, called the Art of Breath. And, and really it was just to dive into the human. Like we're a human animal, right? And at the end of the day, we're an animal. I think we've lost touch with that. We put a lot of... Our, a, our environment has evolved so rapidly and we haven't evolved to handle our environment. So there's a lot of stimuli now that's kind of got us on edge. Um, so bringing it back to being human. And, and so, you know, the thought process here is, okay, wonderful. High performance. Great. Yeah. Let's, let's put that up there. But I think we've forgotten about the human development before the high performance development. I, I couldn't agree more. And when we look at human development, it's the, and this going more to the neuroscience side of things is we're social creatures. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, your experience at practice, if I'm the coach and I'm saying, do these things, and this is the perfectly regimented practice, where am I creating this space for social expression and connection? Because mm-hmm. that's actually how we learn and grow. Yeah. And so it, it's inherently missing a human element. I don't know if you caught this article coming through. Uh, we we just finished the the Olympics, and there's a great great bit on Norway, and so how they mm. how they approach athlete development, and so Norway just crushed everybody. I think they might have hit about forty medals. They just killed it. Um, but I don't know when it was, but a while ago, they moved into an understanding that sport was a way of creating better citizens, and so they created a framework that supported better citizens and so it was fun friendship and medals and so they used sport for a way to get kids to be socially connected and to develop friendships for life and then at a certain point they would win some medals it's beautiful and um, I'm fortunate enough to, to have had uh, Johan Koss, who's a, a multiple-time gold medalist from Norway, uh, speed skater, um, comment on the share that, that I did on, on Facebook. And, and he really dove into what that was. And, you know, he just is such a huge advocate for the person, man. And he's, he's the founder of Right to Play, which uses sport to teach populations around the world about all kinds of things, whether it's education on health, whether it's, you know, to be a better person with the tribe next to you, to even just how to be a better community member. Um, He uses sport as that educator, which is incredible. But, you know, that concept of 
fun friendship and medals. It didn't sacrifice its performance. I'll tell you that much right now. Mm. Which was yeah. I, I really I like that that concept because it's it's bringing a totally different approach to performance, and yet, like I look at like, the the life of most of the people and athletes that I know. And aside from that, the highest level professional athletes who were so focused on, you know, the Olympics or, or whatever the highest level of performance in their sport was, people get really stuck in stuff. You know, it's, oh, I've, I've got to be the best for the varsity team or get really stuck on these outcomes. And then something happens shortly after university, so like early to mid-20s, where there's no longer a highest performance unless you're a professional athlete. And then around 30, I find people start to figure something out. I think it's why, it's why yoga studios, it's why spin studios, it's why CrossFit have become so popular because it, it almost accidentally approaches fitness through the lens of community or friendship or, or some sort of connection. And if that's true, then it, it's proving Norway's approach. And, and we, like, as humans, we're naturally just kind of falling upon that, but we're falling upon it in our 30s. Yeah. Just backwards. Yeah. Well, man, I, I could go a couple different directions of it, but my, my past pursuit, what I spent the last four and a half years doing, was bringing the athletic training model to the general population. And, and a part of that was athletic group training. And so I developed a business model with a friend of mine called Strive Life Athletics that was, we trained 20 people at one time. And it was all under the movement and then conditioning model within about 50 minutes. And it was a team. When you walk into that space, regardless of whether you know anyone in the room or not, they're your teammates. And, and you're all committing to the energy of the room and to supporting each other and in the, in the, in the community that developed within that philosophy is so robust so strong and so committed to to helping others and the amount of people that would walk through the doors who were used to other experiences and, and came in and, and said well like everyone's so nice here like, yeah <laughs> you know they're, they they thought it was going to be you know so competitive or people putting people down and, and us as coaches we set the tone of, of full support full positivity whatever you can give is amazing and then you just work from there and you just work from there. And that was a part of that, you know, I'm, I'm coming here to kick my own ass cause I hate myself to, you know, come here to love yourself, come here to, to develop yourself and use this time to explore your own space of what you're capable of. And, and then we, bringing it back to the body side where we originally went, like, I think the body is so critical because the, the, the more, the further you can take the body, as well as the mind working together. I mean, that, that applies to everything, everything. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, regardless of the mind body connection, it's my ability to experience a breakthrough or, or a new level of something physically translates to my brain's ability to see that possibility elsewhere. So it's it's why that person who does their first pull up or or does their first uh, bird of paradise in yoga like does something that they haven't been able to do physically 
instantly start seeing all these things at work happen or all these things in their personal life happen because it fundamentally shifts my cognitive process. I now see that things are possible that weren't before. And like for me, that moment was, I remember the first time I, I clean and jerked, which is, you know, putting weight over my head. That was my body weight. And I was, I was the small fast guy in lacrosse. And here I am with my body weight on a barbell standing there with it over my head. It was, it was inconceivable to me that that would ever be a thing. But because of that physical shift that, oh, it's a thing, like I'm, I'm literally holding it, the, the cognitive belief system that I had around how the world was had to change. Mm-hmm. And then from that point, nothing's ever the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, bringing it back to the human element, um, I'm on a kick right now of, of the passive and active participation. And, and we're, we're at a point where within society, we could passively be a part of it and float through life and not really die and not be worse for wear. And someone will probably serve as a meal and we'll probably have a roof over our heads within North America anyways. Uh, and I know that's very um, first world of me to say, but here we are in North America um, versus the active participation, which is you intentionally engaging and building yourself because we don't have to anymore, man. You know, I, I have a slide within a presentation of you know, 100,000 years ago, the little stick men with the little bows and arrows hunting. Do you think that they knew what the grind was? <laughs> there was no grind. It was I, I hunt and I eat and I survive or I don't hunt and I die. Therefore, there is no grind. It was. And so this grind narrative, not to, not to revisit it, but we've created all these stories and narratives. But you have to actively engage in the human experience. And, and for you to get your body weight over your head, like that was you going through the process. And Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, I, I love that, that distinction of passive and active. And I, you know, it's one of the first things I look for when I'm, you know, doing an intake with a potential client is, are they actively interested in growing? Right. Because I can't make you change. If you desire to see something different, explore something, gain a greater level of awareness, awesome. You will. I can promise it. <laughs> like it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. I will find what I look for. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many people, the the and it comes to you know the neuroscience of change. We're so terrified of changing something that we'll constantly just adopt our beliefs to make sure that we don't have to physically do anything differently. And mm-hmm. the irony is, you know, it keeps looping it back to youth and sports. The one demographic that is brilliant at it are kids. And yet we create these systems that simplify and minimize change through sport. And then all of a sudden, you know, people are in their thirties and, and they're terrified of change and they don't actively want to take part in anything Mm -hmm. because there's too much of a a social risk of failure. So I have a star next to this word and Vince told me to, to bring this up. (laughs) At which point does ego get in the way of that and get in the way of us 
becoming who we're supposed to be. Oh man, I love ego. So it's funny. I was actually uh, I was doing a lot of psychoanalytic work uh, over the weekend, uh, like everything from Freud to like psychodynamic theory and stuff. And it was a really good reminder of we use the word ego so broadly. And, and, you know, though psychoanalytics has had a lot of criticism, one of the distinctions that, that Freud made that I think is genius is there's the id, which is like my innate desires, biological desires, my hedonistic traits. And then there's the superego, which is, you know, the moral sense of right and wrong. And what the ego is, is the intermediary between those two. So someone who is fully psychologically healthy uh, in a Freudian sense is they have an ego that is able to balance the desires of the id and then also understand the social reality of the superego and fulfill both. Hmm. So it's, it's funny to think of it in that sense because then in common practice we use ego as oh, you think you're too cool for school. Like you, the ego, the bigger the ego, the worse it is. Where reality is, it's about a healthy ego. So what, what I think of, like when you bring in the word, and you have a star next to the word ego, I think it is. Oh, yeah. Like I, I don't even remember your question. I just heard ego. And I'm like, ah! But it, the, way, the way it plays in to all of this is, it's, it's going back to that growth mindset, that, that self-awareness of where am I on that spectrum of compromise and authenticity? Mm. And do I have like, the fitness within my ego to balance the demands both of society and the things that I, I deeply want? Oh, man, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And, uh so I, I'm playing with the concept of, of mental strength is, is not you live in a box and then you increase the thickness of the box and therefore I can resist the things that are thrown at me because I have a really thick protective mechanism from my world around me. Mental strength doesn't mean the width and the, the fortitude of the walls from which you're protected from things. And, and what I use to kind of show that visually is as you thicken the walls of that, if that is your model, the walls thicken internally. And so you actually close your space. And so you become less and less fluid and you get more and more stuck and rigid inside of some really thick ass walls versus the fluidity and understanding of who you are to be able to take a situation, process it without judgment, let go of it and replace it with something positive and, and move on. The the fitness, which for me is is your ability to take and give and, and mold to the situation without folding up. You know, that that's so well said. I love that. Well I, I love the the distinction you're making around strength. I'm like it, what it comes back to is the word performance and it's about mental performance and a component of performance is strength, but it's not the only component. There's also agility and flexibility and like what you're talking about fluidity and like you're talking about a well-rounded athlete mm-hmm. 
who's able to adapt to the needs of the game or the scenario, the mind is no different. Yeah. Oh man, we could go so many different directions. <laughs> We're just jamming hard. This is great. Um, so I have a, I have something that I want to bring to life and I'd love to go through an exercise with you. Sure. So a part of youth in sport right now is they're no longer having fun and the pressures are so high at an early age that bringing it back to the human development, we're, we're focusing on this high performance development at an earlier, earlier age, you know, that race to the bottom, but we're not also coming underneath them and, and building the psychological skills, the, the coping mechanisms to support the high performance at a younger age. And so kids are folding up the anxiety, the depression, the quitting of sport, all of that internally in family, internally in the brain, coaches, organizations, the amount of money that's in youth sport. Now, all of this is, is contributing to essentially, you know, the currency of kids. Like we're trying to gobble up kids to go through the system because we need more and the kids are the currency. And so what I would love to do is work with, people that I'm having these conversations with is, is let's set up a conversation right now where you and I we're actually subbing out for the parent and we're driving the minivan home and you and mm. me, you and me are in the, in the pilot and co-pilot seats and we're going to debrief the child after a practice. So it's not the parent because that parent arguably is not qualified to, to, to handle that situation. And, and I hear, you know, the, the car ride home, it, it creates a ton of anxiety for kids because that conversation isn't necessarily a positive one. And so I want to work with people who are qualified to have that conversation. So let's hop in the minivan and 13 year old Johnny or, or Cindy is in the back seat, and, and let's, walk through a debrief of practice. And so what would be your first question to little Johnny or Cindy post-practice to, to really bring out the dose coaching in, in the minivan? Mm. Oh, this is so much fun. Okay. So it's funny. The, the first question isn't to Johnny or Cindy. The, the first question is to myself mm. and it's having the awareness and responsibility to ask myself, like, what did I think? What were my observations? What awarenesses did I have of the game or the practice? And, and then take, like literally taking a couple seconds to pause and say, what am I at risk of projecting mm. onto the kid or my child? And I think like, this is, you know, such a common thing for coaches as I work with a super smart business leader and I have my own opinions and I actually have to stop and set those aside in order to serve the greater purpose of them. So the first question is, you know, where am I right now? What's my mental state? Am I angry? Okay. If I'm angry, this isn't a good time for a conversation. <laughs> am I curious? Do I care? Do I feel love for Johnny or Jenny, and, and do I want to hear about their experience? Okay, I'm there. Now the question is, how'd that go for you? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm inviting them to bring an awareness to their experience. Love that. Love that. And 
you're you're just you're making space for them to talk about yeah. it and you know uh, not not to interrupt that at all but I, my coaching experience to this date now that I've, I've gotten back into it a lot of times we have to listen first as coaches we want to we want to project we want to put our stuff on that we, we saw but at the very beginning listen create a safe place yeah i love that two where, where would we go from there so so it's funny I, I love that you bring in listening it's by inviting awareness both within myself and then within the child i listen to that experience and, and i see where they're at because it's so important for me to meet johnny or jenny where they're at rather than to be like, you need to be like place that on them if you need to be in this position. So if I'm truly listening, I, I actually think it is human nature to get curious or, or start to wonder or to feel a connection. And that's when I invite insight. So I ask questions like, oh, you, you felt the game re- really bad. What, what occurred that created that experience for you? Or, or what was your role? In, in the team losing by one point at the last second. Like, like, and to me, the what questions are so good mm. of what are the things that you saw or experienced that maybe they're not connecting to why they're feeling the way they're feeling. So it's, 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 number two is inviting insight. That's great. So what comes up to me for listening, and I, I have this conversation with Vince, is are you listening or are you just waiting your turn to speak? And that wasn't at Vince, but we joke about that because, you know, someone's sitting there looking at you, nodding their head. Yep. Yep. Really, they're just planning what they're going to say next. And they haven't, they're totally not checking into what you're giving them. So, yeah, listen, listen, there, there's so many different directions. Um, you could go once that person's given something, right? They're, they're, they're giving of themselves. Um, and it, there doesn't have to be a three, four, five, six, but wh- where would you, where would you love to go next to, to create that positive experience that keeps them in the game, that keeps them hungry, that, that keeps them curious to, to come back regardless of the outcome. I, yeah. So I, I see there's, there's three other components and it's not as in my mind, it's not super linear, but it's kind of this glob of things. And it's like, how do I invite? So from insight or, or with insight is how do I bring thoughtfulness in? And, and that's on a personal level. Like, well, what do I think? And that's my chance to share. Hey, you feel like the game went terrible and, and you played awful, but you know what I saw? You you dribbled the ball like I've never seen you dribble. You were using both hands. We're, we're doing basketball now. I'm like you dribbled with your left hand. You never used your left. Like to me, there, there's a thoughtfulness, and when I'm truly thoughtful, uh, there's a candor because I'm honest, but there's also a kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the second piece in this is action we still care about performance. And, and this is where I think a lot of parents jump to initially is what could we have done better? You should do this better. So it's like, now that we've had this conversation, I'm allowed to formulate my opinion. I'm allowed to ask Johnny or Jenny, what would you do differently next time? What do you, what do you want to do to improve on that? Like start thinking about like the, the doing, but it's after the space of thoughtfulness. And, and I think what, then emerges and it's the third piece is what I'm allowing for Johnny or Jenny is for them to see not only their contribution both to themselves or their team or or the greater system um, they're getting connected to virtue 
so that they're starting to have a deeper understanding of what do they care about? Yeah. Why does this matter to them? Like, why were they so upset about losing? Oh, because they care about good communication as a team and the team wasn't talking. So there's a virtue of communication. So what would it look like for them to, to be a cause in creating communication in the team? Like, what, what an exciting conversation that is to have with, with anyone. <laughs> totally. Man, I got so much from that. That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're in an interesting time, and I think you alluded to it. Like, I think there's a consciousness shift. I think <clears throat> high performance is coming back to human performance. Um, there's there's a, a group of thought leaders right now that you're now one of my thought leaders, um, and I, I can't wait to dive into to what you have online moving forward. Um, and we just we care, man. We care so deeply, and uh, yeah. we just see so much room for improvement. And uh, it's it's great to connect with you over us caring, and it's so so neat to to banter back and forth over these philosophies that we've clearly chewed on for a long time and read about and and worked on ourselves, right? And that's a big part for me is is not leading in terms of you know this is about me, guys. I'm leading this, but it's it's leading from the trenches. It's like I'm working through this every single day. I'm not immune to this. I I like to say you can't outsource your personal development. Like you got to go through it, man. Amen. Oh my gosh. It's everyone. And this is, you know, I think all the self-help books and all the thought out there is great. And the reason there's so much of it is because there's no right answer. Mm -hmm. It's not read this book and you'll get it. It's read this book and you might get it, but he won't, but she will. But like, everyone's going to get pop at a different point. And, and really, it's, it's going back to what you're saying. Of, it's the journey. It's, I'm in a constant practice of self-inquiry and asking myself, okay, I, I believe this. Is that true? Does that serve me? And, and the moment I stop, I've lost. Yeah. How are you leading change through your actions on a day-to-day? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, there's, uh, there's three levels I see it. So one fundamentally is as a coach, I, I'm constantly in an inquiry awareness based conversation with really smart, successful business leaders and athletes who are making a huge impact. And, And what I really believe in is the more work I can do with them, the bigger impact they can have on their entire organization, which matters. Mm-hmm. Like it matters. We need thoughtful leaders in the world. And, and then the second one, and it's, it's kind of an offshoot of this, is and it's getting to what I was saying around like masculinity and femininity, is there is a conversation for men to have to recognize their innate humanness or innate humanity so that they can be cause in the conversation and not just a bystander or, or someone watching uh, the, the conversation about empowering women. Mm-hmm. Like men have a role to play in it. And, and so being one, I think it's important for me to like even say those words. But also, uh, you know, working with some of the male leaders I work with, that's something we talk about is how are you being a, a man in this world and what, what's that even mean? 
Mm-hmm. And how do you actually have a human impact or contribution? Mm-hmm. And then the third one, this is uh, something I'm, I'm really passionate about. When I, when I started DOS, um, I really care about working with young athletes. So I'm like, oh, no wonder you and I get along. So it's what, what I committed is 10% of all my revenue. And I, like it's less about the 10% revenue thing. It, it will be significantly more than that is, is spent working with young athletes. Um, and, and I think like, especially when I think, you know, I look back at my lacrosse days and I'm actually this coming weekend going and working with a, a high school lacrosse team for mm-hmm. the weekend. And the impact that I can have with that group of young men in 20 years is infinitely potential to me. Mm-hmm. If, if they're thinking about what we're talking about at 17 and 18, they've got a 20 year head start on me. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Like, I can't wait to see what they create. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're talking trajectory. The goal for me, the sooner I can make that impact that you're talking about, we have then an exponential change in said trajectory. Nailed it on so many levels. Do you have an internship or apprenticeship or are you mentoring a group of people through DOS or, or have a consistent touch point with some young athletes beyond the actual one-on-one coaching but you're you're coaching them to coach do you have that going on coaching them to coach or or bringing them into the conversation around coaching because if you don't we have a conversation after this that that is so critical is my mistake in in my last endeavor was I, i i believe i didn't bring people in early enough to be a part of the process and so my goal now is to, to work with people, kids, and invite them to, to learn at a deeper level as I'm learning. And, and I was interested if you had a framework for that. If you don't, I'd love to work with you to then create some type of, you know, collab or, or understanding of how we can create 13, 15, 16-year-old future coaches or at least expand their brains a little bit beyond Oh my gosh, I'd I'd love to keep that conversation going. Yeah, there, there's a group of of university students that I've been doing some work with, but um, it's funny. I like until right now hadn't really considered it in the like the way that you phrased it. It was just this thing I do, um, and, and it, it's totally that. But yeah, I, I I love that that thinking. Let's jam. Let's chat another time. Well, listen, bro, we're we're over an hour. That was a big one. We we went deep. <laughs> into a couple, but super valuable. I'd love hearing your thoughts. I got so much from that. And uh, thanks for listening to me as well. I, I wound up getting a, a few sentences in there. So that was so great. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the dialogue. It's um, something I'm finding about like the, the, the podcast <laughs> experience is it's, it's just a great conversation. I'm like, I don't even care if people listen to it. Like it's, it's development for me to, you know, speak what i think and say and hear someone else and that that discourse is so valuable mm-hmm. absolutely i feel it, it, it this is selfish really it is as much as i want to <laughs> share it i also just want to connect with the coolest people on the planet and, and just jam out uh, in, in, yeah. the, in the name of human development <laughs> totally. sweet man well thanks so much stay online i'm just going to stop the recording much appreciated but before we do that how can people find you on the socials on the internets 
everything's under dose coaching so dosecoaching.com uh dose coaching on instagram dose coaching on facebook uh and and if anyone like, ever wants to chat or, or talk more david at dosecoaching.com beautiful there it is